I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. We're back with four new episodes. You'll hear conversations I had with Bill Ford, Fede and Ale Sucre, Rebecca Siegel, and Roseanne Haggerty. Roseanne Haggerty, class of 1982, is the president and chief executive officer of Community Solutions, an organization that works toward a lasting end to homelessness. Roseanne and I spoke about the path to achieving this important societal goal and how Amherst's liberal arts education has informed her work. Roseanne, thank you so much for agreeing to talk about your work. And I would like to begin right there. Could you start just talking about the work you do and how you got involved in it? Well, I've been working on one question, one issue since graduation. The work that Community Solutions, the organization I lead, uh, is involved with is helping communities around the country get to a lasting end to homelessness. And a lot of people don't actually believe that this is a solvable problem. And I think that that's, frankly, our biggest contribution to the work thus far with uh, so many of these places, we've proven that it's possible. We are well on the way in uh, the 98 communities that are part of uh, the Built for Zero movement we lead. Can you give an example and talk about the kinds of organizations, communities, agencies it takes to do the work, really to get to the zero point that you talk about? Well, you know, a fundamental property of homelessness that I think all of us who've worked on the issue just sort of accept it as a normal set of conditions is the fragmentation of local responses that the mayor and the county executive have a role to play, the collection of not-for-profits, the housing authority, the VA, the healthcare system, public health. But in no place were these organizations actually working together to solve the same problem using the same definitions and measures of success. And The insight that we needed to find ways to get these key actors who had the resources, the information, the relationships, the rulemaking authority to actually form a team, it's been learning how to do that that has really been kind of the defining part of the work in the last many years. I think we've always understood that this was a collaborative project and understanding how to bring a whole system together at a community level to actually be solving a problem at a population level, as opposed to operating distinct worthy programs that nowhere were adding up to the kind of comprehensive solution that is required for these issues of of justice and safety. People often see shelters as the default response to homelessness. Your work takes a different approach, Roseanne. Can you talk about that? Well, shelters are a stopgap. You know, they have a necessary role to play in the way that an, an emergency room at a hospital does. But you'd have to wonder about your healthcare system if all you had on offer in a community was a series of emergency rooms and that you spent no time on preventing the emergencies or essentially providing the longer-term interventions and treatments that were needed to restore people to health. And yet that's where a lot of communities uh, sort of lost their way early on in the 80s and 90s. They invested in building networks of shelters or thinking that shelters offered some kind of solution. 
why are we just doing something so temporary when all of the people I'm interacting with don't have temporary problems? There's nowhere to go after the 30 days that the shelter provided. And so that was an immediate signal that there was a mismatch between very good people and well-intentioned institutions' understanding of the problem and the kind of comprehensive and more durable solutions that were needed. And we have in the organizations I've worked for and and have run just really been insistent on the, the permanent solution and that these emergency resources are only as effective as they are linked to permanent strategies. Most people coming at this issue think that people either want to be homeless or that there simply isn't enough affordable housing or money to solve the problem. Our view, tested over many years, is that I have yet to meet the person who wants to be homeless. There are plenty of people who don't want to be sent to a shelter or to be in a place that they feel very little control over their, their safety. And that communities, while we have a grave need for affordable housing in the country, Communities have more than they often realize, and a key problem is to get folks organized around a shared goal, around working as a team, around actually understanding the problem comprehensively and in real time. And communities have shown over and over again through the Built for Zero movement that they can make enormous progress in driving reductions, even without having abundant new resources. It's now an interesting moment in the country with federal resources to see what organized communities will be able to do with more resources. But we have yet to see a community that makes progress on ending homelessness without that tight, disciplined, coordinated system and knowing with with a high degree of accuracy just how the issue is actually moving and changing, what's real on the ground. One of the things I've learned as president of Amherst is the importance of careful listening. Your work has involved going right to the people who are experiencing homelessness. And I wonder whether you could talk about the value of that kind of data. I'd say that the value and the discipline and the maybe the training at Amherst in in listening and, and rethinking assumptions has been pretty core to the way that I've understood this issue over time and at many moments really rethought what the right approach is, what was being missed, even if on some level there was evidence of success. Just to give you an example, my my first encounter with the issue really out of college was working at a shelter. And it was through listening to the young people who were on my caseload that I realized we were full of good intentions, but a 30-day shelter was completely mismatched to the actual conditions of their lives, which required far more intensive and sustained help, which really required starting with stable housing. And that was that launched the first part of my work on this issue. And then after spending many years building housing, it finally became inescapable that the folks who I was passing on the street, they had something to teach me about what isn't working, even if our programs were successful. And it was really turning back to that discipline of Who is experiencing the problem that uh, led to this chapter of our work, which was to not reject housing as a key part of the answer, but to understand it was insufficient if we didn't have systems in place that would actually be accountable to the individual and to the whole community. What we 
learned, and I'd say I've learned from these community leaders and people experiencing homelessness, that good programs don't add up to a population level solution. There really has to be accountability at the community level for solving these tough problems, for driving collaboration, for being accountable to the person and to the community at once. I'm wondering how things have gone during COVID for the work you're doing. During COVID, uh, you've seen communities really step up to get people uh, out of dangerous uh, congregate situations and into uh, safer, more private and quarantine and isolation type units. One of the things that was a byproduct of that in a number of communities is uh, the ways that communities found that given a clear emergency, they could mobilize quickly, move people they never imagined they could assist with housing off the street or, or out of of unsafe situations and, and into stable situations. And many communities have just kept going to move people from uh, those hotels into housing. So it's, it's actually been a, an interesting window into the power of a clear emergency to motivate collaboration, problem solving, to put aside assumptions about you know, what's possible. We've seen so many of our Built for Zero communities see double-digit decreases through the pandemic because of the disciplined way in which they work. When people talk about the conditions that lead to homelessness, they often connect mental health and homelessness. Can you talk about that? Many people feel, I think, discouraged about the possibility of, of solutions to homelessness because they've defined it as a, a mental health crisis. Uh, the reality is that uh, certainly a, a meaningful percentage, we believe nationally, it's about 30 to 34 percent of people experiencing homelessness over the course of the year have some kind of mental health challenge. But the vast majority of people with mental health challenges in our country are not homeless. So they're really two separate issues. And I think during COVID, we realize we're all so vulnerable to you know needing and, and mental health support and how that has to be normalized. That's, uh, that, that's just part of working our way through life. But the exciting thing we see in the Built for Zero communities that have, have really signed on to this way of working is communities have mental health resources. They just often aren't connected up in timely or robust enough ways with those people experiencing homelessness who need them. And so in this uh, kind of, um, we tend to use the term because it's evocative command center approach where everybody's at the same table solving the same problem. It's the way also that there can be this, this integration of mental health services for those who need them. And I think the message is separate out mental health challenges from the housing challenges and realize that these are often connectivity challenges. No one is going to have really a, a positive outcome in terms of mental health interventions if they're frightened, alone, living on the street, unable to manage their medication. So the first step in solving and helping an individual manage a mental health challenge is making sure that they're living in a stable situation. Across the country, the whole notion of whether people who have had experiences of homelessness can be successfully rehoused is really 
a closed question. 86 to 95 percent of what are called permanent supportive housing uh, units, that is housing that very explicitly is designed to incorporate health and mental health supports for those who need them, 80, 86 to 95 percent see no one returning to homelessness again. Roseanne, you work with a couple of uh, veterans organizations. I'm wondering how you think the work of support for veterans is is going, whether in housing or more generally. The progress the country has made on reducing veteran homelessness is a cause for pride, but there's so much more work to do. In the last 11 years, there's been an over 50% reduction in veteran homelessness, and that's really a collaboration of the Department of Veteran Affairs, uh, veterans organizations and housing and homelessness services organizations across the country. And in our Built for Zero communities, we help communities often learn this new way of working that's so deeply collaborative and data-driven around getting through the last mile of ending veteran homelessness. And so the fact that so much progress has been made really does provide a beacon for how solvable this issue is if you have these collaborative structures in place. And importantly, what's made a difference in veteran homelessness is that Congress, for the last 11 years, has been very supportive of a program called the VA Supportive Housing Program, which provides rental subsidies and case management services for veterans who need those supports, and also has created another program that is even more flexible to help veterans who are in a housing crisis do things like pay for a security deposit or or, a couple months rent, but it's not the long-term rental subsidy. It's sort of proof that with a clear aim, the right resources, and a collaborative team on the ground, you can make enormous progress on any part of the homelessness issue. Roseanne, you were awarded your own individual MacArthur Fellowship And now your organization has been awarded one of the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and change grants. What is that going to allow you to do? Well, we are incredibly excited and and, uh, uh, grateful for the support of the MacArthur Foundation, the 100 and change award, which is uh, $100 million over five years, is powering up our work in ways that we, you know, could only imagine before this came into view. But I'll say the first thing that we are especially grateful for is the endorsement of the reality that this is a solvable problem. And I think that that's maybe the biggest barrier we collectively face. People have written off this issue, have just not seen that it's something in our power to solve. But uh, MacArthur's uh, award definitely caught the attention of many policymakers, which is terrific because we need to clear the path of some of the really damaging policy and disincentives actually that exist in federal and state and sometimes local policy that create barriers to ending homelessness. But specifically what the award will allow us to do is over these five years go deeper in the communities that we're currently working in and to expand to an even wider array of communities and get at least 50 of these communities to functional zero homelessness for one or more or even all populations. We're also, for the first time, creating a a policy team because we have seen across so many communities now what some of the fundamental barriers are to progress that need to be moved at the federal level in particular. Uh, For example, 
nowhere in federal legislation will you see the idea codified that the point of all the federal dollars that get spent on this issue is to reduce homelessness. It's all very much oriented of funding services and, and important things, but with no expectation of, of a result of reduced and resolved homelessness in the country. And then lastly, two other areas that uh, the MacArthur funding is supporting include a, a housing acquisition fund that we're in the midst of creating that will allow us to, and focusing on the 16 largest cities and built for zero, help them acquire about 3,000 units of housing to fill last mile gaps to get to zero chronic and veteran homelessness. And then the final piece is uh, supporting an independent evaluation of our work. That, that was a requirement of the grant, but we're really excited about it because it's not your standard like linear or randomized control trial evaluation, but something that's much more dynamic about helping us learn as we go and to uh, shed light on what this kind of local problem-solving approach can mean, not just for this issue, but for upstream issues that contribute to homelessness. Roseanne, you served on our board of trustees for two terms, and I know you have uh, Amherst colleagues with whom you, you work. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to have college friends and, and uh, co-workers. Well, we have a very solid representation of Amherst folks throughout Community Solutions. Uh, one of our founding board members was uh, Ken Banta, and uh, Eric Fornell is uh, a board member, class of 78, who's uh, chair of our finance committee. Uh, and then the co-director of Built for Zero, this powerhouse kind of core activity we drive, is uh, Jake McGuire, class of 2007. And we have some terrific younger Amherst uh, alums, Harrison Haygood from the class of 2018, who's working on one of our upstream projects in uh, a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Brownsville with very high rates of homelessness to work on some of the sources of housing instability. And uh, soon to rejoin us is Alana uh, Valorio, who uh, has worked with us in the past, went to graduate school, and is now coming back, which is a time-honored community solutions tradition. We say, like, oh, you're only leaving you know, for a little while, and that, that often proves itself out. Roseanne, you think the, the liberal arts offers any value when you think back to your own education in making the kinds of connections you do or not? I have so appreciated my liberal arts education at moments where, yeah, we felt really stuck. What kind of problem is this? How, how can we approach it? I think the, the freedom, the discipline, I think the humility of just thinking there are so many ways to understand you know, where, where to find truth and a path forward. I do attribute to the experience of Amherst and in combination, frankly, with my family of origin. You know, it was a very conservative but deeply devout Catholic household. And that combination of the Amherst experience of questioning everything combined with maybe a tradition of questioning nothing has been very rich for me and kind of negotiating what both have to offer, both styles. I think we're in a moment right now where the questioning everything needs to be accompanied by a sense of hope and faith that there are solutions. And so I find that really interesting that you see those two together as a big source of what you've been able to do. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Vidi. I find at this moment we need institutions that can bridge that. 
that's what I, I very much feel my job is at Community Solutions, to be a bridging institution, that we know certain things are true about human dignity, collaboration, a commitment to problem solving, equity, and that how we hold that in a respectful conversation and offering generosity and grace to each other that we can expect to be treated as though we arrive with good intentions, that we need to build institutions now that are both critical and searching and committed to improvement, but that hold those values. Thank you so much for your willingness to have this conversation, Roseanne, and to talk about the work you're doing on behalf of everyone listening and people far beyond. Thank you for the extraordinary work you're doing and the success that you're having uh, by virtue of the approach you've taken to it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. A production of Amherst College in association with Cadence 13, narrated by me, Jeffrey Wright. Executive produced by Biddy Martin, Ian Mont, and Rebecca Kennedy. Produced by Catherine Duke, Bet Schumacher, and Sandy Janelius. Written, directed, edited, and mastered by Ian Mont. Technical and equipment support by Sean Cherry. Creative consultation by Catherine Duke, Carly Nardowitz, Connolly Stokes Buckles, and Molly Whalen. Music from Source Audio and Extreme Music. Archival support from Michael Kelly. <laughs>